I hope that you will make it your plan to be back tonight to be another part of our summer series. This summer series is certainly uh, encouraging, at least from my perspective, because we have some tremendous gospel preachers who are going to be here and teach us on some very timely topics. And uh, Brother Tom Holland is a man that many of you know by having spoken here several times in the past. You've known him by speaking on GBN, and I believe that you'll be encouraged if you are here tonight to hear him speak on the subject of ingratitude and selfishness. So I encourage you to be here tonight, and Brother Holland, I'm sure, will deliver us a wonderful lesson. For those of you who might be visiting with us, on Sunday mornings we've been studying a series of lessons from the book of Ephesians. We've been doing what is sometimes called expository preaching. That is where you follow the text itself and it guides and directs what you're going to study. And we're studying the book of Ephesians and today we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 under the major theme of praise and prayer. As I begin, I'd like to put you as much as possible back in the first century as Paul writes the church at Ephesus. Imagine the early saints at Ephesus when they heard and read this letter. Very likely the letter would have been read publicly before the whole congregation. Just a few minutes ago, Brother Ricky read for us a certain portion of chapter 1. But you can imagine as the letter arrived from Paul and the congregation listened to it being read, many of them perhaps would be pouring over that great theme that he spoke upon over and over again, that is the church of Christ. You can't read the book of Ephesians without appreciating the importance of the church and that it being Christ's church. But I'm sure after it was read publicly, many people would want to go back and say, now what does it say specifically? And for that reason, they would read and reread so as not to miss any detail because there's some very profound teachings found within just the very words chosen themselves. And so as the Ephesians would read and reread this section, it would have a great impact on their faith. Now for us... Is there a prophet for the church today in this letter? And the answer is absolutely. You and I need to have a great appreciation for the church just like they did. You and I need to read and reread this to see if there's any importance within the detail. And so this morning we're going to follow the text and we're going to look at two things. Number one, from verse 15, the praise of that congregation. Then number two, the prayer that Paul utters for them, beginning with verse 16, going through verse 23. Let's look first of all at verse 15. And Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. There are times when churches need to be rebuked. There are times when the church needs to be praised. 
when the congregation is going through some difficult times because people are gossiping, people have bad attitudes, people are not giving as they should, the congregation needs to be pointed to God's Word as Paul told Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. But there are times when the church needs a good pat on the back. There are times when the church needs to be told, you're doing a good job, you're working hard, and what you are accomplishing is a blessing to the Lord. This is one of those occasions here where Paul felt it necessary to speak to them and say, you've done well. So he says, therefore, I also. And if you're looking back up verses 12 in the previous verses, you'll notice that phrase, also, also, indicating that God has done so much to bring about his church to be what he wants it to be. And Paul is saying, I also want that. I want you to be what you ought to be. Now he uses a phrase, after I heard. I can't tell you how many times I've read the book of Ephesians and never really noticed those three words. But as I read it this time in preparation for this lesson, with the thought in mind, if I were an Ephesian and I was hearing Paul say that, what would that mean? What would that indicate? You've got to remember, Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He's writing the books of, or the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. As he is writing these letters, he can't go and see them personally. He's imprisoned. You have to think about also some things have changed. He spent three years with the church there in A.D. 53, 54, and 55. While he was with them, all Asia heard the word of the Lord and believed. But it's later now. It's A.D. 61. About six years have passed. And you think about after six years passes and you've not been able to go personally and see a group of people, and if you're reading Acts chapter 20, as Paul meets with those Ephesian elders, they are crying because they'll see his face no more. He's going to be gone for good. Everything's going to be by letter. So Paul hears. And I think it's important to notice that Paul really cared about the churches. He worked at the churches of Galatia. He worked at Corinth. He worked at Thessalonica. And when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, Paul says, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You know, sometimes we worry about the length of prayers, and we do sometimes say things over and over again and repeat ourselves. But for Paul, the prayers must have been long because he thanked God for congregations like the one here in Ephesus. Now, what had Paul heard about them? There are two things in verse 15 that he had heard about. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. Now, I'm sure some people might be going through your mind saying, well, that's just like saying, how are you doing? How are the kids you just say something as a part of a greeting or a salutation. But that's not the case. 
These are some specific things. What is it that makes a good church a good church? It's when that church believes in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Not just me individually, but all of us do that. A congregation that does not walk by sight, but walks by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. How many congregations say, well, let's see how it all works out and then we might do that. No, that's not the way faithful congregations do it. Faithful congregations say, what did the Lord say? And now that's what we're going to do. Love for all the saints. You like some people, but you have to love everybody. You have to treat everybody fairly, right. And here, every member of the congregation, all the saints are loved by them. Let me give you some parallels here. Sounds very similar to what he wrote to the Colossians. Perhaps he penned these same letters at the same time, writing one to Ephesus and one to Colossae. To them he said, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Very similar. But you get to chapter 2, verse 5, and then it takes on a new aspect to it. For though I am absent in the flesh... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I can't be there, but I hear of you, and I know that you're doing right. It's very likely he wrote the same kind of letter when he wrote the Thessalonians, because he said in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Imagine, here's Paul. He's depressed because of his circumstances, but he's not completely depressed. He's encouraged because... The congregations that he helped establish, they're doing well. Chapter 2, verse, or 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. That tells you a lot about that congregation. Now, for a moment or two, I'd like to explore verses 16 through 23. We're not going to be able to do a word-by-word study, but we're going to look and see some of the themes that Paul rolls out in his prayer. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice the way he puts it. I do not cease to give thanks for you in my prayers. Again, I mentioned the fact that Paul prayed a lot for the churches. Every time he would mention this congregation, that congregation, and he would say that over and over again to every congregation to whom he would write and individuals to whom he would write. It's proper. It's right to call the names of the people needing our concern in our prayers. It's right to name the congregation. If we have brethren in mission areas that are struggling or that are doing well, we ought to be willing to pray for them. There's so many things about which to be thankful among the church at Ephesus. I could go on and try to list a number of wonderful characteristics. Let me just point to two things. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he told them in verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to feed or to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. This congregation had elders that were concerned with their members. How concerned were they? They went to meet Paul because they wanted to do what was good and right. Brethren, it's a blessing to have good leadership. Elders who will stand out in front and lead the congregation in righteousness, in the right way, serving God. And it's a blessing for elders to have a congregation that will follow and do what is right. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, I'm not going to go into their lack of first love because that's later. But listen as Paul, or excuse me, Jesus describes them to John. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and not become weary. These are good folks. Ephesus is a tough town. And these people are trying to do what's right. But Paul specifically prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him in verse 17. That's a broad, encompassing wish. What does it mean that you would have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation 
and knowledge and understanding. Well, let's expand it here. What kind of things did Paul pray that they would know and appreciate? You know, when you lead a public prayer, it's not always the same as a private prayer. Because a public prayer expresses all our wishes, all of our desires. And sometimes it speaks to the congregation as it speaks to God. It's good to hear other people pray. You know, not everybody prays the same. One person emphasizes one thing in their prayers. Another man emphasizes another in their prayers. And as you listen, as you hear, you can be edified as well as expressing your heart. Well, what did Paul want them to appreciate? He said that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. What does that mean? The eyes of your understanding be enlightened. To be enlightened is to throw some light on it. You walk into this room here and you turn off all the lights because there's no outside windows. It's perfectly dark in here. If you're walking down the aisleway here and if some of us have left something in the way, you might trip over it. But if you turn the lights on, it enlightens your eyes. And now you're able to see everything. David said in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway. It shows me where my feet are going. It shows me what is in the pathway. Paul is praying that the church here at Ephesus would be able to see. See properly. Let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture. Colossians 1.9 For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What are we doing? We're praying that you will be able to see God's will, see what God wants you to do. Ephesians 3.9 And to make all men see. That's the idea of revelation that he's talking about in Ephesians 3. So everybody can see. You can pick up your Bible. I can pick up my Bible. And my eyes can be enlightened. But there's some specific things. You know, I started out saying that was an all-encompassing phrase. Now he's focusing, if you will, to enlightened eyes. And now what does he really want me to see? First of all, is the hope of his Calling. Two key words there. Hope and calling. What is hope? Confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking. You know, somebody says, well, I hope I went in the publisher's clearing sweepstakes, clearinghouse. I don't even know if they do that anymore. But you see, some people... No, you don't. You have no confident expectation of that. Some of our young people, however, having completed all the work assigned by their teachers and knowing that their grades were sufficient, have the confident expectation they're going to graduate. 
They have that hope. Confident expectation in the Bible is that God will do everything that he has said he will do. And then the, his calling, that's God calling man through his word, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Listen to Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. God calls me to live a certain lifestyle. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit as you were called and one hope of your calling. You see, there's hope in this lifestyle that God has given us. Well, number two, in verse 18, that we might see the riches of the glory of his inheritance. You can see the word riches there, and you can see the word inheritance. It focuses our minds, first of all, on the physical things. If you have a very wealthy father, and you're on his good side, you get to have a great inheritance when he passes from this life. When you start thinking about our spiritual blessings, going back to chapter 1 and verse 3 of here of Ephesians, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's talking about these spiritual blessings. Then I can understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance. I've got to look and see what will I get. I'm going to get eternal life. Listen to chapter 1 and verse 27 of Colossians. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We get to be with our Lord. That's an eternal promise. Number three among these specific things the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe in verse 19. Now, folks, this is where he goes, and he has begun from the broad statement. He is focused to narrow it, and now he's narrowed it to three things. And as he gets to this third thing, he's going to even narrow it even a little bit further. What kind of power is in those who believe? He says the exceeding greatness of his power. Well, how powerful is that? So he is going to explain. He's going to give some examples of the great power of God. He raised Jesus from the dead. I can walk to the cemetery and I can look at people and say, Come forth. You know what will happen? Nothing. But God's great power raised Jesus from the dead. It's that same great power, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that will raise us from the dead. Number two, it seated him at God's right hand. The ascension of Christ. Where did he go and where did he uh, assign, where was he assigned once he received that glory back in heaven. The ascension is he goes back and he sits at the right hand of God. 
which is a position of authority. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Philippians chapter 2, he said that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Christ to the glory of the Father. Now don't miss this third aspect of God's great power. It says, and he gave him to be head over all things. Stop at that point for just a second. And he gave him to be head over all things. That indicates Jesus' universal power. He gave him to be head over all things to the church. Our head is not inferior in any way. In fact, he is above every being in this universe. That's how great our Savior is. And that's how great the church is, which is his body. That same power, Paul says, works in us. Let me give you a couple passages of Scripture to focus your mind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's talking about that great power that works in us. And Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the Working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me tell you something, folks. As I look at this passage, I begin to appreciate now even more than ever before in my life. The fact is, there's no way that I can save myself from my sins. There'll never be enough money in this world I'll never be able to do enough good deeds. There'll never be any number of people who could give me glory or adoration because after I finish, I am still an unprofitable servant. But God, through His power, is able that when I am buried with Christ in baptism, just like He raised Jesus from the dead, is able to raise me, a believer, through His power to be prepared for eternity. Ponder on that a little bit this afternoon. The more you think about that, and that's going to lead into chapter 2 and I will tell you, when we get to chapter 2, he's going to emphasize, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, a strong appreciation for the work of God in us. Praise and prayer is what Paul had for the Ephesians. What great concern from a man in prison. If you were in jail for your faith... What do you suppose you would be dwelling upon? I can tell you what I'm afraid I would be dwelling upon. 
I'd be saying, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Why am I having to suffer here? Why is it me, O Lord? But Paul wasn't thinking about Paul. Paul was thinking about the Ephesians. Paul was thinking about the Colossians. Paul was thinking about the Philippians. What about us? What praise would an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ bestow upon us? What would be his prayer that we would know and understand and appreciate? This morning, you can be sure that you are right with God. What a great privilege we enjoy as we assemble together each Lord's Day morning, Lord's Day evening, Wednesday evenings, to be able to have an opportunity to be able to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins so God can work through me in this life to accomplish great things. Not for my glory, but for His glory. What a great privilege for those of us who've been straying away to come back and ask God to forgive us, accept us back. As we sing this invitation song this morning, if you need to respond, would you come as we sing?